0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us bright and early. Before we start, I want to thank Nick at Capital Lake for uh, for hosting once again. It should be a great panel. And I want to thank our panelists uh, for joining as well. So, with us today, uh, sitting to my to my immediate left, uh, Richard Tyrell, CEO of Coolco. Uh, we have Art Reagan, uh, CEO of Energos Infrastructure. And Oystein kelikev, CEO of Flex LNG. So this is the LNG carrier panel. We'll certainly touch on carrier rates and and the space. Also touch on uh, downstream markets as well uh, in terms of floating regas and storage. But um, the best place to start probably um, is is with rates and with headline rates. And I want to want to start with going to to Richard first, Richard, since you're one of the the, the few companies that has some market exposure here. Um, LNG carrier rates have enjoyed a a really prosperous multi-year period. I think they're off maybe five or 10% week on week, but at a very firm level. Um, And CoolCo is, again, one of the handful of companies that actually has some market exposure here. So maybe a little bit of color from you to start with with what kind of inquiry you're seeing uh, for your vessels, um, where you think the market actually is, both on a short-term and a longer-term basis, uh, and then just any, any color around how you think about locking those vessels up.
1: Sure. Happy to, Mike. And uh, I know what your last question is going to be, which relates to the short-term rates. And I'm not going to give away my bargaining position, uh, so I'm not going to answer that question.
0: <laughs> Still going to ask later, but that's okay.
1: How, however, uh, I think i does just tell you that uh, we are in live discussions on, on the assets that we have. We have got uh, one asset which is open this year, and we've got a couple of assets open next year, which are amongst the legacy fleet, call it, uh, which are the ex-GOLAR uh, ships. And then we have a couple of uh, new bills open next year as well, which, of course, is a slightly different, more infrastructure uh, type, of, type of market. The rates have been phenomenal over the last little while. Uh, we uh, saw our peak rate at 140, which was for 12 months. Uh, we had the number of uh, three-year deals at uh, 120. Uh, the rates have definitely come off slightly uh, from those levels for term business. But they're still fantastic by historic standards. And uh, we're going through the cycle now where we're moving from 60, which was a typical pre-war level, up to something new. And uh, whether it's going to be 140, 120, or even if it's 90, it's it's still going to be significantly above where where it was in the past. Where are things going to level out? Well, clearly, it makes no sense for intermediate TFTE vessels to make more than modern two strokes uh, over a long period of time uh, but the modern two strokes of course are going up in cost and that's setting the rates at a higher level and everything else is hanging off that that higher level which is uh, good news for for the tftes
0: well Steve, i'd like to get your your color on this um, flex for a long time had quite a bit of market exposure um and relatively outspoken around your thoughts on rates i'm curious what do you make of the current spot market, and specifically looking at where we are now versus where we've been for the past two years? Do you think we've already seen this cycle's peak, or do you think we've got another 12 to six, six to 12 months where we could get some positive seasonality and see, you know, rates that are, you know, bordering on silly?
2: Yeah. Um, last time I was there was October 2018, and I had to catch the plane home because next day we did a 300 million dollar equity issue and bought five more ships and. And uh, after that transaction, we had 13 ships. And uh, at that time, uh, rates were $200,000. And we had 13 ships basically open or spot. So, what we have done in, in Flex the last uh, couple of years is gone from a kind of uh, speculative asset play where we contracted 13 LNG carriers when prices were $180, $185 million each. Today, it's $265. So, we, we bought the right assets and then uh, our plan was to put long-term contracts on them, and actually our planning was to do that in 2020, and COVID derailed that strategy for a year or so, but from 21 and 22, we have been fixing ships, and today we have our first fully open ship in 27, and of course the reason for that is we do see 24 and 25, it's more ships than molecules hitting the water, just like Jürgen explained, we do have our uh, a lot of ships for delivery when there are limited supply growth and then from 26, 27 onwards we do see a lot more volumes coming to the market, both from Qatar but also from from the US and, and that's when we get ships open, 27, 28, and we think that is, uh, is the best window because we are competing against ships costing 265, but 265 is just the sticker price. You know, you have interest rates now of above 5%, lead time is like four years, so these price, price of these ships are like 285 when they hit the water. So they need, as Richard says, they need a high rate uh, to kind of defend that investment, so 100,000 or so for 10, 12 years. And that means we can reprice our ships in the term market because we basically have the same ships. Uh, they're just coming off of charters at that time. The spot market today isn't really functioning anymore because uh, like us, other people have been fixing ships on term charters. So today the the spot market is totally dominated by relets, uh, meaning big charters are reletting ships for shorter periods. and, And there are very few independent ship owners left in the in the, in, the, in the market. Uh, Richard has one ship in the, in the spot market, but except for that, there's very few ships in that market. And the main focus for us today, I will say, is, is the term market. Uh, we do see some prints in the spot market. Uh, it's about 200,000 for modern tonnage today, which is fantastic rates, but, but there are very few fixtures.
0: Makes sense. Um, I don't want to bring Art into this, but sticking on spot rates for just, just, just a moment, now, I know most of you don't have direct exposure to the spot market today, but based on what you just went through, where do you think, if you had a prompt delivery today and you were an employee in the merchant market for three years, what do you think the average rate would be?
2: We do have, actually, market exposure on one ship, so we have one ship on a variable higher time charter linked to the spot market, so we do get some juicier uh, you know, earnings on that ship, typically in the winter season. Uh, it, you know, if, if I were richer and I'd have one ship open in October, I believe. Um, I would probably rather look at doing a 12-month time charter because it's so hard to be in the spot market when you are competing against Shell, BP, Exxon, Chevron, every, you know, all the big players and the traders. And, you know, when they, there's a cargo that's going to be shipped uh, and this is put through the broker system, you know, the brokers are always going to prefer the big players. If you are one, a small ship owner with one ship, you are down on the, on the list. And it's going to be hard to fix that ship even if you are discounting your rate. So, uh, so I would rather try to fix the ship on a term charter uh, 12 months or longer rather than compete against the bigger players in the spot market because the, the liquidity is so low today. Art, same question to you. Just...
3: <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you a number Good.
0: if you're looking for a number.
3: I, I would say, for a, a, like Richard was saying, there is a range of types of vessels. So from an older steam vessel to a modern fuel-efficient vessel. So for a modern vessel, let's say 125,000 a day for three years would be an acceptable rate in today's market, and that's a good return, so the market is still quite flush right there. So that, that would be a good return. I would t- I w- we would take that.
0: Richard?
1: Mike, when you're in the market for a ship, I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, maybe, maybe switching to term-oriented business and and what I know you guys are spending most of your time on, um, I'd like to speak a little bit about tendering activity, right, so uh, the potential to place big blocks of ships or or even a couple ships with um, portfolio volumes, large projects, Um, and maybe we can go down the line or if anyone has anything different to to add, but but Richard, what kind of tender activity are you seeing right now? Um, And maybe without giving names, maybe scale of that tendering activity, region, um, any color would be helpful.
1: Sure. And I think when you talk about tender activity, you're talking more about the long-term yes. uh, charters. So these are the infrastructure type type deals, maybe more applicable to the new bills. And uh, there, um, I think most of the uh, projects which are well-known and coming, uh, that, that they're pretty well covered. Uh, so You're not seeing a huge amount of tender activity in in that area. Uh, I I dare say uh, people like um, next decade might start looking at taking ships uh, in in, in the future. Um, But but in general, the forthcoming projects are quite well covered. The tender activity today tends to come from slightly different types of customers. Uh, It's partly the Japanese um, customers, which have got quite large fleets, including a lot of steam turbine ships that they're looking to uh, replace. And, of course, they run quite rigorous uh, processes around uh, any, any vessels they take. Uh, and then you have the uh, big portfolio players. Um, a lot of them have quite big fleets, so yeah, they're always looking to add an extra ship uh, here, here, here and there. So I think the activity today is not so much uh, specific to projects. It's either the Japanese uh, importers or it's the, uh, or it's the big uh, big traders
0: and uh,
3: portfolio
1: players. Art, anything
3: yet? So, wh- what we do at Energos is predominantly real marine infrastructure. So, the, the regasification assets is is the, the largest block of our assets. So, that's a different kind of tendering process and a different demand scenario. Um, Everything in the world is active today because of really what happened last year with Russia invading Ukraine. Everyone is reevaluating what their energy matrix should look like for the next 10 to 20 years. And it's not just energy transition, it is now energy security. So the marine infrastructure for LNG now, when it comes to that asset class, is in a very, very exciting sweet spot now. And the tender activity continues in Europe. It exists in South America in a big way, across Asia now um, for, for multiple drivers, not just the transition component for, for decarbonization, but also for security. So it's, it's really worldwide now. Well, we're, we're quite busy. Mm-hmm. We, anything yeah,
2: no, I, you know, we, we have very limited uh, kind of experience doing these tenders because we have fixed 13 ships uh, ranging from 3 to 10 years. All of them, without doing tenders, we, we think that you know in, in two thousand and twenty we were say, the biggest operator in the spot market. We had all the ships open, and we uh, created a good uh, relationship with a lot of our customers, which were very happy with how we run the ship uh, with uh, physical assets so based on that, we, we fixed all our ships through uh, bilateral discussions with charters so rather than go- going through this long and painful tender process so so uh, we're not really focusing on tenders. There are, you know, tenders from time to time. Qatar is probably going to order more than uh, 100 ships on tenders. Uh, of course, we we looked into that. It's like 35 ship owners worldwide uh, participating in a race to the bottom. That's not going to be a lot of value left there, except for maybe the ones running the tenders. So, so we we're not focusing on tenders. We are focusing mm-hmm. on on, you know, uh, talking to the big charters and having a good relationship uh, based on trust and then rather, you know, if they have a need or requirement for a ship, we will be there to to push our ships ahead of them and uh, see if we can do a deal without going through big tender processes. But uh, that said, you know, as as Richard mentioned, there are always big projects. Uh, you know, in America this year we have had a couple of FIDs there are still a couple of FIDs where people are working on that. If you're doing a big project, let's say 10 or 20 million tons, you don't want to you don't want to FID those kind of volumes Uh, let's call it uh, 10 million tons and suddenly everybody knows you are short 20 ships because then (laughs) the ship owners with the available tonnage they're going to adjust upward the price if they know somebody's short 20 ships because the yards, as Jürgen mentioned in his presentation, they have a lot of backlog now. They don't really have capacity to suddenly add 20 new LNG carriers. So, so that means that if your people are developing a project with that kind of volume, they will typically try to secure uh, at least a majority of that uh, freight need before doing the FID. So they are not being caught short in the market. So, so we do see some of those players, uh, uh, you know, sending out tender requests or meeting ship owners bilaterally to discuss if there are uh, possibilities to charter ships.
0: I'd like to stay on that for a second. Um, in terms of exposure to either portfolios or projects, be it through long-term tenders, shorter-term charters, um, or, or just business with portfolio codes that, that happen to have exposure or equity volumes in one of these projects, You know, we've seen some very high-profile projects globally pause, right? So obviously Arctic 2, where you've had some owners that have deployed capital towards Arc 7s. You've got Mozambique, which I know Total started talking about restarting this year, but, you know, we'll see. And then you've got some other projects in North America by AAA-rated sponsors, right? So Exxon, QP, Shell. Um, And the common theme here is that everything is paused or massively delayed, right? So when you guys think about, your exposure to these projects. I'm, I'm curious how you think about it from a credit perspective. Um, I, there's a degree of insulation based on your, your type of employment, but I think it would be helpful to kind of run through with the audience. How you think, well, what should they, what should they, th- they think about when they see Golden Pass pushing uh, for, you know, uh, commercial operations into um, early 25, right? Or uh, LNG Canada kind of continuing
2: to slip. Like, how does that impact you as a shipowner? I think, you know, there's not only projects slipping. There are also some projects that might materialize, which we didn't think going to materialize. This year we had, uh, you know, Placamina, Sport Arthur uh, recently being FID. We do see some projects like Delphin Mexico Pacific, uh, and Commonwealth, where people thought these projects are dead, and suddenly they are... (laughs) <laughs> signed up 70-80% of the, of the, the volumes uh, and, and might do the FID. So, so there, there's not really that much slippage. I think the one that are uh, the most notable is, of course, the Mozambique LNG, where uh, it's been delayed in the rail for quite some time. But uh, on Golden Pass, uh, I think they are on time, and, 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 and the volumes will be coming, you know, basically when, uh, when announced. Uh, LNG Canada slight delays, maybe because of COVID, but it's not material delays. Uh, some projects, like the Venture Global projects, been very quickly ramped up, even though <laughs> it's all uh, commissioning cargoes to the irritation of some of the, the off-takers. Uh, but the volume's been, been in the markets. Uh, so uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm not too worried about uh, too much slippage, but I'm more worried about uh, the unbalance of the order book, where we do have a lot of orders 24 and 25, when there will be limited volumes, because the volumes takes off from end of 25 into 26. So so you might have some time with uh, low utilization of the fleet, especially given the fact that Europe is uh, gobbling up most of the spot uh, volumes, meaning shorter uh, sailing distances. Uh, so. So I think that, that's, that's more of an issue than kind of delays of of, of uh, liquefaction trains Art, or anything then.
1: Yeah, I think it's the it's not so much the credit which you look towards for the types of counterparties that you're talking about on on the whole within within this business, but it is the knock-on effects that uh, additional uh, shipping uh, has on the short-term market. Uh, and of course, how do you deal with that? Well, you, you look at your portfolio and you make sure you don 't have that much exposure over, over that period, so in our case, uh, out of our eleven ships which are on the water uh, we 've got uh, three of them which which are exposed over that period, and the rest of them come open in two thousand twenty six and 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 beyond uh, it's it 's that portfolio effect which you use to to manage the potential downturn
3: so in the in the regasification infrastructure, the credit counterparty, it's a huge issue because you, you're signing up for 10 to 20 year contracts and you're really reliant on that credit. So as a, as a discussion about what the market is right now, it ranges completely from triple A to something something not so exciting. And But that's, that's a good thing, so there are a lot of choices, obviously for our long-term capital we would prefer the investment grades but there's a lot more competition for those and the yields are lower so where you're seeking higher yield you need to take a little bit of credit risk and uh, more importantly is understanding what's what's going on so in a situation where you have an asset that is regasifying imported LNG and is in some cases singularly responsible to power a city let's just say a city like Jakarta for example you do have an element of, I wouldn't say control, but support that can be helpful when underwriting an investment. And that's the development of this LNG world right now. Everyone is considering LNG as a transition fuel to decarbonize, and that's becoming more powerful. So it is a big concern, and thankfully in the, in the infrastructure world right now, we have options from AAA to something that's not so exciting, but there are ways to support that as well. So it's in a good spot.
1: And uh, Maybe on that, if I could just clarify on the, on the shipping side, uh, we, are, we are kind of fortunate where you are more in the AAA uh, zone, maybe not AAA, but at least investment grade. And uh, that, um, that's the way it is, because uh, shipping generally tends to be your customer is normally the, the upstream player. Uh, that, that have got higher credits. Of course, as you go, go downstream, you start getting uh, uh, emerging market credits and uh, the kind of credits where you do have to pay, pay more attention. Uh, but, but shipping is not so subject to those uh, lower level of credits.
2: Yeah, I agree with Richard. You know, you have to have big, big bucks in order to be in the LNG game. So, uh, most uh, you know, you have a big, much bigger concentration of the super majors in LNG than in oil trading. Um, so, you know, for Flex, we have 13 ships on t- uh, term charters, so five with Chenier, five with supermajors, and three The three remaining ships are with the big uh, trading houses which have been making a killing the last couple of years, mm-hmm. so we're quite comfortable with the, the counterpart the risk.
0: So I want to pull forward the conversation on on Regas, Art, and come back to you. Um, as we touched on, on credit a little bit, but um, you know, one of the most active areas for, for Regas and storage has been Europe. Uh, there's been a decent amount of momentum there, although maybe not developing as quickly as the market would like. Um, and obviously, there there are regas opportunities and, and the potential to deploy relatively high-return infrastructure at other pockets of the globe. So, maybe if you can get a l- little bit of color in terms of what you're seeing in Europe, in terms of the pace of of, of regas development, uh, and then maybe some other regions of the globe that we might not be focused on, where you think there's strong potential.
3: The action has definitely been in Europe. I mean, there were 11 regasification units secured last year, so incredibly active. That's uh, like three, four times what it normally is in a, in a year for the regasification market. And thankfully, almost all of the European projects are government-sponsored because reaction from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that's that's quite investable and and easy. Uh, when you mentioned slowdown, you know there. there there has been a little bit of a pause for absorption. I would say the inquiry is still there. Europe is still on edge, and I would say the concern is spreading, and that's a that's a good thing for our assets and our investment because the inquiry is continues to grow, and most of the sponsors in Europe are are, are governments or or investment grade. So it's it's quite fruitful picking right now. I I don't think that it's uh, paused for long frankly it's really just absorption and timing because much of Europe wasn't prepared at all and they're just taking some time to build the infrastructure to receive the LNG and but but it will come so I think it's a process of just absorption right now but there is there is more infrastructure that will be developed throughout Europe and as I was mentioning around ton miles that pull from Europe uh, maybe shortens the the long haul Asian trade for an LNG carrier out of the U.S. Gulf, but at the same time the volumes for regasification and 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 the growth of LNG use throughout Asia continues. So I don't think it's a a short term thing at all. I think it's the, the supplies will continue to go both short haul and long haul to Asia, and there are developing markets in Asia where, as I was mentioning, that there. Their strategies for the governments are not just the energy transition where they've been very slow to to move up and certainly very price sensitive in some of the non-investment grade countries in Asia. But because of what's happening globally at the moment and what happened in the Ukraine, I think there is a heightened sensitivity around security and therefore these conversations are increasing and and being followed through and we've seen already in Europe how governments reacted very commercially the public private partnerships in many cases moved at lightning speed compared to what the normal multi-year process is we're seeing a little bit of that in in Asia as well so it's uh, it's it's a really good time I think the growth of the volumes will continue we're also seeing a lot of activity in, in South America, Brazil in, in particular. There's a number of, of public and private projects happening there. And so everybody is on edge now. They want to know how are they going to provide power and electricity for their citizens for the next 10 years because of what happened in, the, in uh, Russia and Ukraine. And that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. So it's, it's quite active um, in the infrastructure now. And so we're, we're, we're quite happy right now.
0: So me going to Richard and sticking with the geopolitical theme. Um, so obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine continues to ripple through trade patterns, project buildouts, asset retention, um, and then you've also had what's happened in the last couple of days um, in Israel. C- can you speak a little bit around the impacts that geopolitical risk has for LNG carriers, um, both in terms of ton mile? Um, Crucify just how do you when you see stuff like that happen, right? It's been a very busy, you know, year, year and a half in terms of kind of heightened geopolitical risk. What kind of demonstrable impact does that have on, on the business?
1: Well, firstly, it's terrible what's happening over in, in uh, Israel, and uh, we, we obviously look at it and we say, well, what impact could that have on, on our, our business? Uh, I think the uh, it's if it escalates, that's when it would have an impact on the uh, LNG uh, business. Obviously, Israel uh, does uh, export a bit of gas to uh, Egypt, and um, yeah, maybe that uh, ends up getting exported through those terminals. Uh, but it's, it's, it's relatively marginal volumes in, in, in the big scheme of things, uh, at, at least at this stage. Uh, however, what it does do is that it puts everybody um, very much on edge uh, when it comes to energy security. And uh, of course, that's not new. They've been on edge ever since the Russian invasion of the uh, Ukraine. And uh, ultimately, uh, it's it's this kind of thing which holds up the the gas price. Uh, now, um, anyone who's long gas obviously benefits from that. Qu- quite often, that's our customers. So our customers are doing quite well. Um, maybe that uh, helps uh, improve their willingness to pay um, for, for shipping. But I think ultimately in a geopolitical uh, context, what people are very focused on is just diversifying their supply. And uh, if you're uh, China, uh, for example, um, you don't want to have all your supply from, coming from Qatar. You, you want to have some coming from Australia. You want to have some coming from maybe Mozambique in, in, in the future uh, because of the risk of uh, one particular place being, being cut off uh, for, for uh, whatever reason. Uh, so people are very much looking at um, uh, looking at energy uh, in, in a in a geopolitical way. Uh, they're looking at reducing risk uh, by having it coming from multiple places, and uh, that's why uh, shipping is so is so so essential uh, to to this market.
0: Haven't we seen anything yet?
2: GEOPOLITICAL RISK CAN BE POSITIVE OR NEGATIVE FOR for LNG. IT DEPENDS ON THE CONTEXT. YOU KNOW, WHEN uh, DONALD TRUMP WENT TO A TRADE WAR AGAINST CHINA IN 2019, WE HAD 12 MONTHS WITHOUT ANY CARGOES FROM U.S. TO CHINA ON THE LNG SIDE. SO uh, FOR THAT uh, REASON, YOU KNOW, uh, MARKET IN 29 WAS QUITE POOR BECAUSE OF GEOPOLITICAL RISK. RIGHT NOW, OF COURSE, IT'S BEEN uh, THE RUSSIAN INVASION OF UKRAINE HAS RESULTED IN BASICALLY uh, Know, Europe needs to replace a lot of pipeline gas with LNG, and they've been, you know, you know the European buyers have been believing in a, a liberalized gas market where you don't have long term contracts, where you just price gas on a hub price. So that means that they have to get all their LNG needs from the spot market, and, and suddenly you have Chinese. By sellers selling uh, LNG to, to, to European buyers and this has really driven up prices to uh, crazy levels. We, we had a hundredfold increase in price from bottom to peak, so bottom was March 2020, $1 per million BTU went to $100 26 August 2022. So and, and right now of course LNG prices come down but they are still elevated. Europe is the marginal buyer, uh, and and, uh, a lot of the Asian emerging markets have been priced out of the market because they can't compete with European buyers willing to pay this price. Uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Thailand, Vietnam, you name it, these guys are getting priced out. Uh, It's less worse for uh, the big players. Japan China, South Korea, they basically almost f- covered on term deals, so they are not really dependent on the spot market because they have sourced all their LNG needs on long-term contracts and, and are not really affected by the spot market unless they sell their cargos to European buyers. But all the developing countries, they have not this access to, to long-term LNG contracts and need to buy... Uh, LNG in the spot market, and and right now still, the prices are too high, prices are in contango. Prices are going to stay elevated for a couple of years because, as I said, there's very limited new LNG coming to the market 24-25, which will keep prices at a high level. So so they have to turn to other feedstocks, and uh, one of them is LPGs, which I will be talking about in the advanced gas LPG panel here in a couple of hours' time. So, so they, they are sourcing the cheapest hydrocarbon they can find, and right now, it's not LNG. So maybe
0: shifting back to, to the industry for a second. And so I remember hosting or moderating a panel like four or five years ago with a, a number of LNG public LNG players, none of whom are still public, one of whom is still public today, but um, the cast of characters has definitely changed, and the dynamics in the industry have changed to the extent that for about a decade, new build LNG carriers cost around $200 million, right, so you can kind of set your watch to it, you have know, an idea what 70 of the reference rate would get you from a cash-on-cash return. You know, that, that price point has obviously moved up. Um, so I guess my question on asset values, and I'd like to go down the line here because I know it's relevant for everyone. Um, one, is, is 260 sustainable throughout the course of a cycle, right? When we start to actually see relets on this tonnage, it, or do you think it, it, it rolls over? And then going in the opposite direction, I don't think yard margins are particularly wide at 260. Is is there room for them to continue to to move higher as we see inflation and every other aspect of the value chain? So maybe Art starting with you and then going to Richard.
3: I would say that $260 million is is not sustainable. It's, It's an extremely high price by historical standards. It feels okay now because you can lock it up at a double digit return on a multi year charter, so that sounds sounds fine. but as oystein mentioned the the relet market of the of the oil majors, the energy majors uh, could become a factor as time goes on but uh, the the compounding factor is the cost of capital and interest rates, and at least in my own career, when we see prices at all time highs for 18 months, 24 months, with interest rates moving to, you know, nearly all-time highs and moving with the dramatic shift, where the cost of capital takes time to kind of filter in. Uh, it doesn't feel like it should be sustainable. There continues to be inquiry. That's a little, a little tough to explain. Sometimes uh, there are many suppliers that are out looking for ships, some of the tenders that you're mentioning, they're immune to the independent ship owner. Uh, so overall, I, I think that uh, if I had to answer the question, I would say it's probably not sustainable and that at some point we're going to see a rationalization of more long-term numbers.
1: Well, firstly, I, I think there's a lot of uh, ship owners out there which are, which are not public that have actually found themselves caught out by this change in rates. Uh, so, uh, you know, you get a lot of people calling up saying, you know, would you like to buy an LNG carrier? And you say, okay, interesting, 260." and they go, yeah, 260." Okay, but, you know, today. But then you ask, okay, what about the contract? And they say, you know, they go a bit quiet then, and eventually you kind of get it out of them that it's on a 10-year contract with two five-year options at $60,000 a day, and they haven't fixed their rates. So when you do the maths on that, they are... Um, basically a zombie company because there's no cash flow to equity uh, go, going forward at those, at those levels. Uh, so th- that's actually pushed a lot of the um, kind of new capital that we saw coming into the sector a little while ago um, out, out of the market, I think. Uh, you still have Japanese capital out there, which is quite uh, uh, quite quite cost effective. Uh, so, you know, strong competition uh, there. Um, you know, is the 260, um, sustainable? Well, I think we have seen a bit of a tailing off of new, new build orders, uh, at, at that level. Um, I, I don't see Oystein ordering any new ships and, uh, obviously he's in a position where he could if he, if he, wanted to. So I'll let him answer the question. But, uh, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but do I think it's going to come down? No, because the yards are not making, uh, money at, at, at that level. Uh, The average age of a welder now in Korea is said to be in the late 50s. Uh, You know, people are starting to get comfortable with Chinese uh, vessels, but it's really only one yard in China that's got any experience, so uh, there isn't a whole load of um, uh, competition uh, at at a lower price point. Um, So, you know, I think our feeling is that prices will creep up to reflect the cost of new build shipping. uh, but um, there'll be a gradual tailing off in, in orders because whether the market's able to sustain those on a value chain basis, I think, is very much open to question.
2: No, I agree. I think it's uh, it's getting too elevated. Although that said, you know, 15 years ago I was with Knutsen and we ordered ships then at 2:35. So that's 15 years ago. Long-term yields at that time was slightly above 5%. So in that sense, 15 years, you haven't really had a lot of inflation. Lead time for the ships were three years. So. But still, I, I do think it's a bit elevated, and especially given the fact you have 50% order booked to fleets, you know? <laughs> Would you like to add more to that, uh, to that fleet? Um, the yards are very comfortable. They <clears throat> there's just a couple of 27 slots left they, they, they are. Richard mentioned in China they don't have any more 27 slots available. They are 20, booking 28 today. Qatar will order a lot more ships and, and keep the yards busy every time they order a ship. <laughs> the, the yards are losing money and crying. Uh, you saw the recent Qatari order average price 230. They, they when the Qatari reserved 151 birds at the three Korean uh, Yards and, and Hudong in China, they had a price formula very favourable to Qatari, and that's why the Yards are losing money on every order, and that's why you see this low sticker price on, on some of the Qatari orders. So that means that the Yards need to make up some of the loss on on the more kind of uh, speculative new buildings or the the, 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 the outside uh, new buildings. but. Uh, contracting has tapered off, <laughs> so that's at least a good thing, you know. We got to such an elevated level, you don't contract a ship unless you have to and you have a specific project. When uh, we contracted uh, for 15 years ago at 235, at least you get a 20-year contract. Today you are lucky if you get uh, 10, so, so that increases the risk uh, of, of maybe, you know, getting your money back on, on that huge investment.
0: It comes down to the owners to kind of hold the line on rate, right? And we saw last cycle there were some newer entrants in the space, some PE backed owners um, that were particularly active in dragging those rates down. Richard, you mentioned sixty k with with five year back to backs on it, um, which rings pretty true. How would you contrast the competitive balance today? versus what we saw last cycle. Do, do you have more rational players in there today that might be able to hold the line on uh, rate a little
2: uh, bit? Uh, ju- just to mention that, I think one of the reasons why people were low-balling and, and, and going to these crazy, ridiculous rates for $60,000 for 10-year deals was you had a lot of players with, uh, you know, have you seen that movie with De DeVito, other people's money? That's the problem. So you have a kind of a broker contracting ships, and then you get all the people's money. And that happens when interest rates go to zero. So when Fed have been keeping this interest rate at artificial low levels for such an extended period of time, you get crazy money. And this crazy money went also into LNG, contracted a lot of ships, because they thought it was very easy to get a 10 15 years uh, contract and suddenly when the market came down during covid these guys got desperate so they got uh, basically a rate which were able to say sustain the debt capacity on the ship and there's nothing left to the equity owners so uh, i think it's different today when you can get five and a half percent you know lending to the u.s government why do why chase these kind of deals Uh, there's not really a a lot of these players left and that's I think will uh, create more discipline by the owners.
0: All right, Richard.
3: If the question is about new capital into the industry, I think that where LNG comes into play is around the infrastructure theme and most of the new capital providers, private, would are not interested in the commodity play. They're not taking spot market risks. They are interested in longer-term income-generating contracts because what we've seen in the last 10 years or so is a a disappointment, generally speaking, where there was new equity coming into the market, say, 2010, that through the volatility of dry bulk and tankers and LNG even back then – Uh, didn't really have a successful outcome so that income for more speculative private equity, pure private equity went away and you don't see interest from the pure private equity today like you did then and even hedge fund. What you do see now is more long-dated capital and and infrastructure oriented and I, I can also speak for now the Apollo funding that is the majority owner of Energos infrastructure it is, it is really perpetual capital. It's, it is insurance capital. It is pension fund oriented. So it fits when you have long-term contracts. And that's a shift. So I think in the last five years or so, we've seen re-emergence of new capital coming in. But it's different capital than before. It's not willing to take that spot market risk because that's just too volatile and uh, and and that's that's here to say because when i say infrastructure capital I'm mentioning again the current blending of two themes the world and when i say the world the, the the finance world capital providers are wanting for sure to decarbonize and also needing to so where where can you put money into lng is a is a perfect place because it's a It's a growing market, there's huge supply coming online, very capital intensive and it's going to stay and it's a good thing that it also decarbonizes the world. Uh, Maybe it's not completely sustainable the way uh, uh, solar or or ammonia or hydrogen can become over time, but right now if you want to generate uh, the same amount of electricity and power generation for large populations, LNG is a perfect spot to transition as we're figuring out long-term decarbonization. So that's also the reason uh, not only the income but also the purpose of infrastructure funding and I think it's here to stay.
1: Anything to just, just quickly, I think all the owners have been strengthening their balance sheet and uh, there is a recognition amongst customers that uh, they, they want to go with good, experienced owners which maybe has not always be, been the case. And, and then lastly, this notion that LNG is going to become a spot market like the tanker business, that's completely out of the window now. Uh, so I think there is, is hope that uh, the, the rates do stay quite, quite firm and uh, people maintain their discipline.
0: It's a good place to end. Um, thank you all for the time. Thank you for joining us. And uh, Nick, we'll hand it back over to you.